It's always good when you have enough kids that it has to be crowd control just to get them up there, right? Not every church has that blessing. We're thankful for it. Y'all did such a good job. All right. If while they're departing, if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, verses 1 through 13. First Corinthians, the eighth chapter, verses one through thirteen. And the word of God says this. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. May God bless the reading of his holy word this morning. We live, friends, in a world full of judgment. That can be a good or a bad thing, but perhaps it's best if we define what I mean by judgment. I heard one wise preacher one time say that judgment is the process of sizing someone up and writing them off, or sizing someone up and choosing to value them. So therefore, judgment must be how we evaluate the other. And how we, how we size up the other so that we determine whether we want to take them seriously or not. It's the process by which we size someone up. That can be beneficial or detrimental, yet that's what we do in our life. That requires us then to place value upon certain things while discounting other things. 
We give certain things value while discounting other things. I was scrolling through the internet one day and I came upon this, this website and app that a company uh, had put out. It was used by a lot of employers in New York and, and, and Los Angeles and around the metropolitan areas. And so I looked into it and it was called, I believe, Clout. And this Clout app, this Clout webpage, wanted you to put all of your social media credentials into it. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all those things that you may know a lot about or nothing about. It doesn't matter. But you put your, your information in there. It aggregates all of that information and puts it out as a score, kind of like a credit score. The number of likes that you get, the number of shares that you get, the number of, of thumbs up or thumbs down, the number of hearts that you get, the number of followers that you have and friends that you have, all give you a clout score. And that clout score supposedly shows your employer and your friends how important you are. Some of y'all aren't very important. I've seen your Facebook page. If you get one like, you're doing well. If you got six friends, you got, you got five more than you had yesterday. All right? You know how it goes. But employers were using that and saying, if you're very popular, if you're an influencer, you must be of some value. In fact, some of those main influencers get jobs like Coca-Cola and, and, and The Gap to demonstrate their products because people buy it. That's how they've got their clout. And it shows us how the world judges us. Because the world says, whoever likes you, whoever values you, whoever follows you, that's how you gain your importance. That's how you gain your importance. So what is it in 1 Corinthians today that Paul says the people of God have decided is worthy of their importance? What is it that the people of God are judging each other by? Where are they getting their clout? Because the world says popularity and influence and all that stuff is what gives you your clout. What is it that 1 Corinthians and the church is giving them clout? And I think that thing can be summarized pretty well by an 80s slogan that they used to show to kids in commercials. They used to give us some bit of information and then a star with a rainbow behind it would come out. Any of y'all from my generation remember what the slogan was? The more you know. All right, somebody watch TV with me. Okay, the more you know. Paul, when he's talking to the church in Corinth, says you are getting puffed up over the more that you no. Knowledge and information and logic is how the people of God in the church in Corinth are judging the basis of their argument and their brothers and sisters. Why do we do that? Why is it that we place our, our, our chips, we push all of our chips in on the knowledge card? If we are wise, if we are knowledgeable, if we know more than our brothers and sisters, surely we have more value in the kingdom. Why is it that we do that? First of all, we like logic because logic makes sense, right? It's a logical progression. I was scrolling through the television this weekend trying to find something on Netflix, which is a process that takes as long as watching a movie most of the time, right? You scroll through Netflix and scroll through Netflix, and I was looking at Rotten Tomatoes. 
which is a website that tells you whether a movie's supposed to be good or bad. And I found one that was good. I turned it on, and it was one of those deep-thinking movies. Y'all ever done that? Turn it on and go, I don't know what's going on yet. And every time the kids came in, I'd pause it because I still didn't know what was going on. And after about 15 minutes of that, I thought, I'm not in the mood to think today. So I scroll through the channels, and I find Smokey and the Bandit. Now, how many of you had to think during Smokey and the Bandit? If you, if you did, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that life is challenging for you. But Smokey and the Bandit's easy, right? They start in Texas, they pick up their beer, and they drive to Georgia, and mayhem ensues. But most of the movie can be filled up not with dialogue or conversation, not with difficult storylines, but with a country song sung by the truck driver in the movie. That's how difficult it is. But I love Smokey and the Bandit wine. Because it starts at A, and it ends at B, and there's not much thinking in between. I like things like that that make sense. And I want my life to be like that, not bootlegging liquor across state line. But I want my life to start at A and end at B and not have much deviation in the middle. That kind of logical progression makes sense to me, and it's easier. I think that's why we like knowledge, because it gives us our argument, A to B, just like that. If you do it that way, you're fine with God. Everything's good. Let's go. So that's how we like to think. Show me where it says it in the Scripture. I'm going to do that, and we'll be fine. A to B. We like that because it makes sense. We also like it because it's quantifiable. We can measure it. Do this, and you're fine with God. Do this, and you're not. Do this and everything's fine. Do this and it's not. Everything is logical and chronological and measurable. We want Paul to say to us, the people of God are saying, Paul, we've got this dilemma. Give us our argument so that we can prove that we're right. Give us an argument that we can defend with logic and that we can measure. We like to measure things. And if it shows us benefit, we'll go with it. Every job evaluation I've ever been in that's trying to seek to determine whether I should come back to a church or get a raise, they always ask me the same things. They'll say, what are your measurables? Have you invited in new members? Have you gotten the attendance up? Have you done this? Can you prove to me that you're worthwhile? And I always look at them and say the same thing. If I need numbers to prove to you that I'm worthwhile, then I'll just go on. Because numbers don't always show effectiveness. Measurables don't always prove benefit. Sometimes the things of God aren't easily measurable, and we need to let it go. See, they want Paul to say, if you eat this, you're okay or you're not. And Paul goes, sometimes the answer's not black and white like that. It's not easy like that. But we want it to be because we want logic and knowledge to justify us and give us permission. If we have the background information, if we have the numbers to back us up, if we can make an ironclad defensible argument, then we can justify any action. We are experts, friends, at skirting God's will by justifying ourselves. We are experts at it. It goes back to the beginning when Eve handed Adam the apple, when the serpent handed Eve the apple, when God called them in their sin, what did they do? They blamed somebody else. And they said, surely this is what God would want. Surely God would not want us not to have knowledge. Surely God would not. And they made up God's mind for him. We do that over and over and over again. 
When I was serving in a different district in the United Methodist Church, I had a friend who was serving in a church uh, the next town over. And it came out that his secretary had stolen a good bit of money from the church, about $80,000 worth. Over the course of 15 years, that's a little bit at a time. And they called her, which churches are notoriously for waiting 15 years to do it, but they finally called her. The, the hand of the Lord finally reached down and got her. But as, as, they, were, as they called her, they, they questioned her. And they said, you have stolen from us. And she said, I, I, I took $80,000. They said, you have stolen from us. And she said, I got $80,000 or so. dollars." And they said, don't you know that that's wrong? And she goes, it's not. And they said, yes, it is. You can't steal. And you definitely shouldn't steal from the church. And she looked at him and she said, I earned it. Y'all didn't pay me enough, so I took what I was owed. And they shook their head and they said, no, that's still stealing. She goes, it's right in my book. See, we can do that. When we want something to work, we can justify it. We can use our intellect that God gave us and the knowledge that we have. And she had checked around to see what other secretaries made and she was paying herself that. But it wasn't hers to decide. We do that. We want permission to act outside of God's will. And we use our knowledge to do that. We think our clout comes from information. The more we know, the better we are, the more trustworthy we are. That's why we send our pastors to seminaries. That's why we do Bible studies. That makes us wiser and worth listening to. And yet Paul looks at the church and says, in this argument and in all times, you want to be justified by knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. And he gives us the alternative. Here's what your clout score ought to be based on, friends. What does he say? love. You want to be justified through knowledge, but God is judging you on love. He is sizing you up through love. Love, to quote a great theologian, is all you need. Love. Love is all you need, but we don't like that. We don't like to be sized up by love because how can you measure that? How can I determine if I'm better than my brother or sister in Christ if it's measured by love? I have a three-year-old, and my wife has started a game with him. She'll go, Asher, I love you. And he'll go, no, Mama, I love you. She'll go, I love you more. And he goes, mm-mm, I love you more. I should have videoed it. It would have been really cute. I love you more. I love you more. I love you more than, than, than Mickey Mouse. That's pretty, that's pretty big. And she'll go, I love you more than, than, than Disney World. I love you more than this. I love you more. And they go on until finally Emily goes, you must love me more, Asher. Now, he wants, it, he wants to win. And we all want to win. And we say, Lord, how can I win if we're measuring in love? Because love's not easy to measure. But here's how we win. We realize that our measurable is not dependent upon uh, what we do so much as why we did it. You want to have a heart for God? It's not about what you do as much as why you did it. Because we can do things for others begrudgingly, but God doesn't look at our actions. He looks at our heart. It's important, that why, it's important why we do it, because what we do impacts the world, yes, but why we do it is what makes us who we are. And who we are matters. 
So how do we show and demonstrate our love? How do we build up our love clout so that we can be influential for God? We have to realize that we must remove ourselves from the center of our own universe. It's no longer going to be about us. Because Paul says, if doing something, even though you can do it, if doing something that you can do and be okay with God causes your brother or sister to stumble, what does he say? Don't do it. And you say, but I am, I'm okay with it. I like my freedom. I want my freedom. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. And Paul says, but if it hurts your brother, it's not giving to the Lord what you need. In fact, God says you have to die to yourself in order to be raised. You have to die to yourself. So if you love something, but it hurts your brother or sister, stop doing it. Stop doing it. We live in a world that says, do whatever feels good to you. And Paul says, uh-uh. Do whatever helps your brother or sister. That's what's important. Why? And I just, I don't have to look very far to know why it's important that we realize we're not the center of our universe and that we need to help our brothers and sisters out. When we had these kids standing up here uh, several weeks ago, they sang a little song for us. The younger ones did, the little bitties did. They said, be careful, little eyes what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. And they kept going. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. What they were singing about is something that I learned long ago as a youth minister, as an educator, as a, as a, as a pastor. You learned it as a father or mother, brother or sister, grandparent or aunt or uncle. You realized it long ago. Other people are watching you. My aunt was a notoriously late woman. Um, she died many years ago, and I, 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 when I was preaching her funeral, I said, I'm surprised she's not late for this. She, she was late for pretty much everything. She was a good 30 minutes late for every Christmas, so we used to tell her it was 30 minutes earlier than it was so we could get her there. And we were at her house one day, and we were fixing to go to something, and, and, and me and, and her husband, my uncle, had gotten in the car, and my brother was in the car, and her four- or five-year-old son was in the car. We waited and waited. She came out after about 10 minutes, forgot something, went back in. Another five, 10 minutes, came back out. As she opened the door to that Toyota Tercel, she went to sit down, and my little four- or five-year-old cousin in the back seat said, get your beep, I won't say what it was, I can expletive, he didn't say expletive, in the car. To which me and my brother at 15 looked at each other with big wide eyes. My, my aunt turned around horrified. This has never happened to y'all, y'all's children were great. But they turned around and looked at him horrified and she looked at him and said, where did you hear that? To which the four or five-year-old pointed at his daddy and said, he says it all the time. <laughs> he looked at her and said, I don't know where he heard it from. And she goes, I do. I do. He learned a valuable lesson that day, which was what? I always feel like somebody's watching me, you. They're watching. And Paul says, somebody's always watching. And if you love them, you'll do what helps their walk in faith. Make sure what you do doesn't cause them to stumble. 
The world is full of judgment. It likes logical means to measure us. We like logical means to excuse our behavior, and yet God seems to be motivated through love. He judges us on a love scale. Love doesn't make sense. It isn't measurable. It doesn't justify bad behavior, yet it makes life worth living. I've done hundreds of funerals. Brother Pat's done hundreds of funerals. I've talked about many a person who's lied in a casket. And when I do, I cannot remember a funeral. Brother Pat may remember one of his, but I cannot remember a funeral where I've said to the congregation, this person knew a lot of stuff. Or this person had great amounts of knowledge. Or this person could sure argue for the Lord. I I don't ever remember saying that. But I have looked down at the casket and looked out at the congregation and gone, this person loved you with a great and fiery love. They loved you enough that they would have done anything for you. And those are the best funerals because those people leave a legacy. So here's what I'm telling you. The world's going to tell you how it wants to judge you. Don't buy it. The only thing that matters is how God judges you, and God judges you by how you love. No greater love has any man or woman than this, that he lay down his or her life for another. Be willing to sacrifice things that are fine with you if they cause your friend to stumble. And live a life of exemplary example so that others might follow Christ. This altar's open this morning. Maybe you need to lay down something that you love that doesn't help your brother or sister. Maybe you need to pray for a brother or sister that they might know the love that you've been sending their way. Maybe you got a burden from this week you want to lift up, but this altar's open. If you want to give your life over to Christ today and His love, just let us know. If you come up to the altar, Brother Pat or I will pray silently over you. If you need more than that, just let us know. But let's stand and sing our closing hymn this morning. Freely, freely, number 389.